0: Today, I'm really excited as well as honored to have Dr. Jed Gonzalo visiting the Mountain Lion Podcast Studio via telephone from Penn State University College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. This is, of course, part of my series of podcast interviews about bedside presentations and rounds. Dr. Gonzalo has published widely on health systems education as well as on the topic of bedside rounds. So today I was hoping to mainly focus on Dr. Gonzalo's expertise in the area of the art of bedside rounds, Um, and if you want to read more about this, I'd begin by referring you to a 2012 article Dr. Gonzalo and his co-authors published in Journal of General Internal Medicine entitled, The Art of Bedside Rounds, A Multi-Center Qualitative Study of Strategies Used by Experienced Bedside Teachers. Jed also has published on bedside interprofessional rounds and you can find numerous publications on this topic by searching his name in PubMed or whatever your favorite search engine happens to be at this time Jed would you mind introducing yourself to our podcast audience and telling us a little bit about where you grew up went to college medical school did your residency training uh, and what your title and position are currently sure Paul thank you
1: very much for having me and inviting me to do this podcast. It's really exciting to be joining you today. Um, I'm an associate professor of medicine and public health sciences and the associate dean for health systems education at Penn State College of Medicine. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I grew up in a very small coal mining town in in northeastern central Pennsylvania. I did my undergrad work at the University of Scranton where I double majored in philosophy and biology. Um, I took more philosophy credits than I did at uh, biology credits, so I think that informs some of my work to this day. Then I came to the Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey uh, for four years, moved to Boston for my internal medicine residency at the Beth Israel Deaconess, then moved to Pittsburgh for my first year of a medical education fellowship. I blended medical education and a clinical research master's degree, moved back to Boston to complete my chief medicine resident year, and then moved back to Pittsburgh uh, to finish my fellowship. Um, There was a lot of moves in that um, six-year zone. And then... Returned here to Penn State, where I was initially hired as a clinician investigator with a significant um, startup package, if you will, to, to work on a K award, um, looking at uh, quality quality of care outcomes in inpatient units and within health systems. Um, but after 11 months, realizing how bad the funding was. Um, I kind of just shifted a little bit. A couple opportunities came up to take on this health systems education um, educator role. And I've been balancing this education, research, clinical, professional role now for almost eight years and really loving my job.
0: Well, and, and just out of curiosity, what was the small town in um, Pennsylvania that you grew up in?
1: The name of the town is Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. Um, It just happened to be, um, there's two anthracite coal beds in Pennsylvania. One is up by Scranton, and another, the largest vein of coal, is in this region, and it's known as the coal region, Um, uh, Appalachia, if you will, in part Appalachia, and really booming towns in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and since that time has kind of receded to a large extent, um, underserved um, rural areas. Um, so it's a contrast for me to, to leave Boston and Pittsburgh and, and even Hershey and go home to see my family, um, who still lives in that area, so it was, just a, it was just transformational for me to grow up there. I would not have exchanged it for growing up anywhere. Hmm. It was just amazing. It really informed who I am today. But it is a little sad to see the struggles that the town is going through in current day.
0: Hmm. And uh, what are some of your outside interests when you're not uh, at work?
1: Yeah, I think my my primary outside work interest is my family. Um, I have been married to my wife Tiffany since 2012. Um, I met her during residency. She was a nurse at the time, a bedside nurse on the oncology floor and, and is now a nurse practitioner. We have three children, a five-and-a-half-year-old son who's now in kindergarten, so I'm a kindergarten dad, I'm a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, Eleanor, who is um, just very spunky and energetic, and Caroline is our one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, and she's just great, and they are pretty much taking up a lot of our time. Um, I am into history. I love uh, historical context, going to Gettysburg, um, museums. I'm um, also a sports fan. This podcast is happening a couple days before the Super Bowl, but I'm a very big Kansas City Chiefs fan. Oh, Wow.
0: Excellent. Well good luck with that. (laughs) Uh,
1: Um, So Jed, there are
0: a lot of things I'd love to talk with you about, but unfortunately time does not allow and people tend to lose attention span on podcasts if they go too long. Um, But since this podcast is part of a series on bedside presentations and bedside rounding, I was hoping to focus on your work investigating the art of bedside rounds. So
1: first off, can you
0: just define what you're talking about when you're talking about bedside rounds?
1: Yeah, I think you're hitting me with one of the most complicated questions to start off with, because I think this is a struggle, especially when it comes to whether it be conversations about bedside rounds or, in particular, the literature. When you look at the studies that have been done on on bedside rounds, it is remarkably challenging to come to one unified and mutually shared definition. Um, That was probably the biggest challenge I had in um, leading the projects that we did, because bedside rounds, um, bedside case presentations. There, there, there's some overlap and similarities between the two, but they're not exactly the same, and they live in a larger umbrella of attending rounds, if you will. If you pull up a, a schedule um, of, of a clerkship or a residency program, even all the way back um, to the 60s and 70s, and you're looking at schedules, it will say attending rounds, and in there is what's happening in the attending rounds is it, is the, is the case presentation where is it happening, um, where are the larger umbrella of rounds happening? So I think it's really hard to define, and I think that ties into a lot of the the reviews that have been done on on educational and patient outcomes. There's just a lot of heterogeneity. When I think about the definition, what we came to at least in our studies was three different components that would go into the, the, the unit of, of rounds. The first is some form of the history um, or social history of, or current context in this patient's care that is being exchanged through a communication means. The second is some form of the physical examination may not need be the, the full examination, but one or two or several components of the physical exam and then the shared decision-making component, i.e. The, the assessment and plan for the day and where are we going with the plan for the next several hours or the next day, and are we all on the same page, and what does the patient feel about that? So those three components, the history, the exam, and the shared decision-making process are the the three um, general components. That, that's kind of how I have viewed them in our scholarly work. And you can have certain components that occur at the bedside and certain don't. I would say the majority of this larger umbrella bedside rounds the presentation itself We don't have great data um, cross-sectionally across, but I would bet most people are doing the case presentations out in the hall. And then going into the room to do the last two components, there's some reiteration or repeat of the physical examination and then some shared decision-making process or at least a rediscussion of the assessment and plan. I think the full tilt version is all three of those components are happening at the patient's bedside. Um, But there are the three components on how I would formally um, define it. The piece, though, that I think um, sometimes is excluded is really this interprofessional or interdisciplinary component that would include the nursing staff and ideally some other members of the team. And how they fit into that presentation, that whole um, um, entity is, is kind of complex. Mm-hmm. And why
0: do you think bedside rounds are important in medical education?
1: So I think from an education lens, um, to me, when I'm an attending out there or even reflecting on my time as a student or resident, this is, this is the arena. This is the where care happens with patients. And if we want to, for example, observe as medical student or a resident, R1, R2, R3, in the, at least in the internal medicine context, if we want to see how they're doing on, on a milestone or a set of competencies or the EPAs, there might be some that apply to the workroom um, or in the hallway uh, interacting or communicating with the broadened interprofessional care team, but the arena to me, I'm using a Teddy Roosevelt analogy here, but the arena is happening with the patient. And if you were to ask me to reflect upon any one of the residents that I've worked with, if you pulled up their profile picture and they, I worked with them four or five years ago, my mind goes to them and their behaviors and their skills and their interactions with the patients at the bedside. Because in, in my view, that's the arena. That's where it's happening. Um, how do they communicate? Do they Are they at eye level with the patient? Um, are they addressing the gown or the, the bed sheet? Um, how do they integrate the other members of the interprofessional care team? So to me, it's, it's the opportunity for us to work with learners before they go into that encounter, into that arena. What you want to work on? Observe it. Let's use it as as an opportunity for the group to observe, give each other feedback, and tailor and for us to, quite honestly, coach them to become better at the the physician-based skills that we hope and dream for them in that clinical environment. There's plenty of other learning that happens outside, away from the bedside, but I am of the belief and of the philosophy that that is where the the educational opportunity um, is occurring, and that's where the the learning is going to happen.
0: And I guess a corollary question to that would be, why are bedside rounds important in patient care?
1: Yeah, I think this is one that, um, I don't call it the holy grail, but a lot of people would say, if I were to say, hey, we should be doing more bedside rounds, they'll say, well, show us the the benefit to this, show us the outcomes from a patient-level perspective. Not a ton of data, um, but... John Rattel and the group at Mayo I happened to collaborate with them. They did great work. It was in BMJ quality and safety, I believe, last year. Mixed results, mainly mainly neutral. Um, not a lot of quantifiable um, outcomes that you can see that come from bedside rounds. Uh, maybe some, some tendency towards positive results in the patient experience, but Again, there's just so much heterogeneity in, in the encounter or the entity of bed rounds that I think it's really hard, and they commented on in the paper that it's really hard to, to capture the essence of what this quote-unquote intervention is. So I think there's a belief that we are spending more time with patients. Patients, if you spend five or eight minutes with, with them, and the data, some of the work that we have done in the past will suggest if you're spending the X amount of time, let's say eight minutes, you can ask them afterwards and they'll say they spent 20, 25 minutes with me. Um, and that's a tangible patient quality, if you will, their experience of what care is, and there's a team-based component and, and understanding, seeing the fall risk, checking for adverse events or, or medical errors that might be occurring on the IV bag or the medication, or, or, or are the bed rails up, and, and are we on the same page as, as the nurse that day or the family that day? There's a lot of stuff that I just don't think you can capture um, from a quantifiable outcomes perspective, um, that you believe you're moving some levers, even though they're, they're hard to capture. Again, I don't have a lot of data to back that up, but and some of them are indisputable. I mean, just the patient experience piece and, and them feeling like we are there to help them get better, to heal, and to transition out of the hospital, if we're talking about the inpatient setting, or even in the outpatient setting, that they can transition into a, a healthy lifestyle and enjoy their life.
0: So, so looking at the literature, as I, I have no doubt that you have thoroughly. Um, how much, on average, of you know teaching rounds occurs at the patient bedside in the United States?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is a, a question that I have grappled with. Now, this is doing the math. I mean, I've been working on this since 2005. And um, I may not be up to speed on some of the more recent literature, but I I just don't think that, that we know. I think we're compiling data Across some of the studies that are out there, um, some of our own, but many others have have looked at some cross-sectional assessments, and I think it differs by specialty. It might differ by by location, clinical spot. Are you in an outpatient pediatrics clinic? There's been some outpatient work. There's been inpatient work. What's the? I mean, is it the intermediate care unit or the? Um, um, the general medicine med search for. So I think part of that matters and ties into this, and the definition ties in too, because if you're using a little bit more of a loose definition, then you might have higher numbers. But if I had to to generalize across the studies, I would say that it's probably 60 to 70% is the ceiling effect. Where you're seeing your benefits of of education and flow of the resident day, the student day, the, the attending day, and the nursing staff day, where you can have the entire team present and available um, to do those rounds. In a, in, a, in a good manner, in a, in, a, in a way that you believe isn't, isn't uh, curtailing your goals. And that's probably the maximum 60 to 70% of an average census. Of course, that's gonna differ by what the census is that day or, or the acuity of the patients or the acuity of, of illness and by hospital setting. But that's what I have found. Some of our studies have suggested that our most recent one, bedside interprofessional rounds, if you're in the ICU, certainly those numbers are higher. But general units, general medicine uh, surge floors, um, probably
0: closer to two thirds. Wait, so I got a little confused there. So the the t- closer to two thirds is what's not happening at the base- patient bedside, or is happening at the patient bedside? Yeah,
1: Sorry. Sorry if I was unclear. I think that's the ceiling of the max. Okay. So I, I think if so, for example, when I go on on service, I'm I'm. This is my philosophy. I'm trying to to encourage um, bedside team into professional rounds is really hard with the nursing staff, um, but to do it on every patient, and you have care coordination rounds that might run from 815 to 845, we need to be done by 1140, we've got a, a three-hour window, and some, some places would say that's a large window, um, but to do that, we have a 14 patient census and to do that on on all patients, it just it becomes untenable It becomes really challenging to do. So we're probably narrowing in on nine or ten patients on that census any day. Max that we can do a hearty job, a really genuine and authentic job of meeting all those goals and rounds. And I, I, there's variability. I think there's there's other attendings who, might not even attempt to do that. They might say, we're going to focus on three today. Here's the three we're going to focus on and try to target you with that. Um, but I'm not sure there is a gold standard.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, So of the total time rounding, at, at say, at the average medical center across the United States, what percent of that time is actually, like if you have three hours or two-and-a-half-hour attending rounds... What percentage would you estimate? Now you're you're in a place where you're making a concerted effort to get to the bedside, but what sort of the average do you think?
1: You know, there's some time-motion studies that I don't have off the tip of my tongue, but if I had the ballpark, this is the team, the unit of the team leaving the workroom and going to to round for that two and a half three hour. Time span. I would say, and if you're doing some of the case presentations in the hallway, I would say it's probably 30 percent, 35 percent at the at the bedside. The rest is is either in the hallway, communicating with nursing staff, answering pages, calling consults, getting some of the the high yield work done outside the room. But to be honest, I, I, there's probably a lot of variability in there, um, and there's probably some recent data that might. Um, negate what I just said, but it's just not, it's not the preponderance of, 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 data. And there's, there's a number of barriers as to why that might be the case, but there is a cap. I do firmly believe there is a cap in today's day and age on busy inpatient services. Our, our service line today is, today is 152 patients. And eight years ago, even one of these studies that we're talking about, the art of bedside rounds, when this was done, this was done 2010, 2011, that's nine years ago. The service line here on medicine patients was remarkably smaller, um, 60, 70, probably less than 50%. Hmm. The length of stay was a little bit longer than what it is today. So I think there's a lot of factors that have changed even when this study was done.
0: Got it. So speaking of that, the study, uh, in 2012, you and several colleagues colleagues published in JGIM, uh, this study based upon semi-structured interviews with academic physicians who routinely use bedside rounds for clinical teaching. How many interviews did you conduct, and who in general were these clinician educators?
1: Yeah, we, this is a really eye-opening informative um, project for me to do. This is my first multi-institutional study. My mentor was uh, a clerkship director, and he had a lot of ties. So we identified 10 different academic health systems, really good places, uh, worked through the clerkship directors, <clears throat> and we interviewed. ended up interviewing 34 different uh, faculty attendings, those who were on service a certain number of weeks in the past two years and serve in the role of, of in, inpatient hospitalist attending, teaching attending. We use a purposive sample. So we wanted to identify, okay, who who are those that are locally recognized as really good bedside teachers or those who have experience in, in, in knowing how to do this process? And even that point alone is very challenging. There's not a unified award that goes out every year for bedside teacher. So how do you identify those? Um, and it was by word of mouth. It was by some inst- Some schools would go in and ask their residents, okay, who's the bedside teacher? Some people just had anecdotes saying, look, this person is known locally as the best bedside teacher that we have. So there's some variability in how each place identified it, but in general, these were people who were known to go to the bedside. They invested in this. This is part of their mental model on how they approached education, and we really got a, a nice, diverse spread of responses from them. Some were a little bit more in a community-based centers. Some were at the further end in the academic setting. Some were younger in their, in their years, um, just recently finishing training. Some were further along on that spectrum, too, so we got a nice, diverse the voice if you will from these 34 individuals.
0: And what were some of your main findings in the study? Yeah, this paper is is part of there was a
1: couple other um, publications that came out of this, um, we had very long interviews, and the data that we were getting from these interviews were quite honestly amazing. I still remember analyzing these. Um, there was just so much that came from it. And this study, I was terming the how-to paper. How do you do it? Okay, we just interviewed people who who do this on a regular basis. So let's provide the guide um, to those who want to go to the bedside more. And there were some books out there. There's a there's a the name of the, the title of the book is teaching during rounds, the handbook for how to do it on rounds, that was around for several decades, and there was some anecdotes, but the learning platform in the literature, the gap was, let's try to provide some more guidance uh, for other attendings to go do this. So our main goal was to try to provide some structure by how you could approach going into bedside rounds, particularly for those who might be reticent to go because they just need a little bit of guidance. So we found a number of things um, that I think really stuck out, mainly preparation strategies both for the the attending and the trainee. And I still remember these these transcripts. They're awesome because it becomes pretty clear. Yeah, you, I was doing the interviews as well, but when you start analyzing them too, you begin to realize this is not a process that you can kind of just fudge or just walk yourself into These attendings are preparing for it. It's a volitional part of their day. In fact, it's a volitional part of their preparation strategy before they even go on to warts. And one of the findings in here was about mental preparation. Some of the attendings would talk about mentally preparing for rounds and working with a dynamic team of of trainees. They might have two medical students, they might have three residents, um, and there might be a pharmacist on the team. And all those trainees have different learning goals. So not only taking care of 14 um, sick or ill patients, um, and there might be two admissions that day, but you are now trying to coach five different learners through the process of their own competency development, and that takes a, a frame of mind that that it just takes effort, it takes strategy, it takes practice. One of my mentors calls you gotta hone your craft, um, and that really was was. a a very strong theme in this work. They put a lot of prep time into strategizing about it. And how did they strategize? There were things that they did about that were patient-specific, that were disease-specific, that were training-specific. So if there was something they didn't know about I don't know, some COPD, the stages of COPD, and they wanted to make sure it was a teaching point, you had to prep on that. Um, or if the trainee identified before the rotation that rotation, they had learning goals on auscultating the lungs, then you kind of you try to see if it's going to work. A patient came in with COPD overnight. I'm reading here a note there might be wheeze. You try to Make, set aside some time to make sure that you're observing the resident in the lung auscultation on this patient. And then the next patient might be the, the learning goal for the intern, and the students might have different learning goals. But you kind of have to prep, align, strategize, and put a lot of pre-work in your mind or maybe even on paper on how you're going to approach the day. And then another difficult layer is how do you coordinate all that in a, in a, in a, in a two-and-a-half-hour Time compressed zone, and you're triaging a lot of different things. It's, it's, it, there's a cognitive load even thinking about the needed preparation to do it right.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Um, how much work did they put into that um, up upfront? Um, so, reading the literature on the topic of bedside presentations and rounds, I've sort of gathered. Uh, that a major obstacle can sometimes be the trainees themselves and specifically I'm talking about the residents. I mean, given their workload and other responsibilities, they don't seem to necessarily see it as a wise use of attending rounds time to go to the bedside, you know, because there's a lot of unknowns at the bedside, Um, the so-called thin ice phenomenon I think it's called sometimes. In, in this study, did you learn anything about how to better sort of recruit residents to the goal of increasing time at the patient bedside? How do you get them on the same page with the same goal of yeah. get, getting to the bedside?
1: Yeah, Paul, I think this is a key issue for educators, um, particularly in the clinical settings, um, because I would agree there's mixed receptivity and engagement um, in doing this. And I think part of it lies in the fact that they are in the arena. We're placing them in situations where they are. We're asking them to lead the team. We're asking them to lead encounters at the bedside. We're asking them to navigate some difficult conversations that may arise. Um, And I think for some... Maybe I was in that boat, too. It's a little bit more unsettling to be in that environment than it is to be working in the hallway and to do, to do some of the tasks of medicine on the inpatient wards. Um, it's not everybody, though. I think there's a, a very good majority of residents who, who, who believe in it. Once they hear the goals or maybe they had experiences before with another attending and they might see it as more efficient, um, and they're behind that. So, strategies to do it. I think there was um, there was no golden ticket in that study that came out of this, but I think what they did was, one of the key things they did was training preparation and having some conversations with them early on about what the goals are, what we're trying to accomplish, um, and trying to build a shared mental model as to what we're after, taking care of patients, uh, meeting good um, quality outcomes, they have patient experience that is timely and effective care, um, and uh, that's going to come through us discussing with the patient and the nurse. It's less likely to happen if we're re- more removed from some, some removed location and you know some some residents might take the approach of okay i'm going to pilot this i'm going to listen to what Jed is saying here and i'll test it and some of them might fall on the side you know what I, i think there is something to this and some of them won't um and they might not believe or see it in the back end and i guess that's okay too i think that's part of our job is to open up the opportunity for our trainees to see things differently um and I also think it's the responsibility from leadership. There's a culture that goes with this, from from program leadership, from nursing leadership, about us seeking to be team based. And I, I don't think it's it's very easy, and it's a it's a it's a complex thing because if you're in a culture, for example, where most people don't do this, and I've. I guess this partly happened to me. I trans uh, all those moves I was talking about. You come to a new place. I can't just come in and say we're going to do this. You got to negotiate with the residents and say, okay, let's talk about our goals. And you know maybe it's not all 14 patients. Maybe it's it's disproportionate. Let's let's pilot test this a little bit. But the challenge is even more uphill if they just experienced seven attendings and their seven rotations before this, and none of them did it then I'm walking into a really difficult uh, labyrinth of challenges because they don't know how to do it. It's not part of the culture. Um, and the uphill battle can be can be just a little bit more steep. So I think there's attending specific things and, and getting um, training buy-in, if you will, um, really creating the burning platform. But there's also the larger platform of the culture of the residency in the unit um, that really can, can be conducive to this. Hmm. I that made sense for them.
0: Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, so regarding the patients that these educators that you interviewed um, saw on rounds, were there any general attending physician approaches uh, that you found in your work about the selection of which patients to go see?
1: Yeah, this is when we start doing the interviews, it started to pop really quickly, and they started to talk about their, if you will, a triage process. This preparation part about rounds, I think, ties in. We have a table um, in the paper itself about the patient selection process, but they would talk about you come in early. You might do some every every attending prepared somehow night before, computer the morning of, and they would go through it in their mind. They would begin to build a a priority list of the patients. Okay, we got 14 patients today. This is these patients are in a box of if we don't round as a team on round, that's probably okay. Um, But there's another box that we need to go to the bedside on these patients um, because they're sick. Maybe they are new admissions and we're going to make a safe assumption that a lot of the decision-making that is uh, critical is happening within that first 24 hours. So we're going to go see the new admissions or maybe post-call days. Those were admitted last night. We put plans in place. We need to check in quickly and make sure that the consultants are still coming by. We'll do another check in on them. And there's this middle of the road, um, those that might be educational value. Maybe it's an interesting case. Maybe the students have identified certain learning goals and we're looking at the list thinking, you know, she would be a great patient to to really articulate a a brief teaching script here because I know that our student is struggling with this and identified this, so we're going to try to prioritize this patient a little bit higher on the list. That's where some of the decision-making comes in on how you prioritize that list. And it's got to be negotiated with the residents because how the attendings approach rounds, there was generally two two camps with variations in between. Uh, many attendings took the role of, I am steering this ship. The residents are are my support team, Um, I'm going to lead rounds, I'm going to introduce the patient, I'm going to introduce everybody, and I'm going to be holding the ball for a lot of the process. And on the other end of the spectrum was one where the attendings took more of a consultant role. And they said, you know, this is the resident's team, Um, I'm going to let them lead rounds, I'm going to be right there, I'm totally in it with them with all the details. Um, But there's variations in the approaches that the attendings took. So I think that ties into how you triage patients too because if you want the resident, this new R two for example, to, to learn the ropes of leading a team, then part of it is it's it's a it's a dance with them. Are they going to triage the list? How can we help them begin to think proactively about triaging the list across all 14 patients? Because that's a skill. That's a leadership skill, too. I can't just come in and say, here's the list. We have to negotiate that. That needs to be part of the learning agenda on how to do that. So it, gets, it can get complicated. I wouldn't call it complex. It just takes some bandwidth to think about it. Hmm.
0: Um. Yeah, that was actually my next question was what the primary role of the resident would be on rounds. But it sounds like it sort of depends on the specific system, the culture of the residency program, and, and the individual attending. Is that correct?
1: I, I would agree with all that, Paul, and I'd also add where the, the trainee is. Mm-hmm. And their development. I mean, I think you and I. I mean, we all do it. That we're trying to assess where the where the trainee is, where they at in that in their learner continuum. Um, that R one to R two transition is is personally I think is under, more underappreciated than certainly the intern to, or the medical student to intern transition. But that R1 to R2 transition is tough. I mean, it's not an easy thing. Instead of seeing five patients in the morning or six or seven, now you're, you're responsible for 14. Your teaching roles are up. Now you're triaging across, you know, multiple trainees. Um, and now you're middle managing a team. So it's just, it's just a unique thing I think for a resident, if if we're doing our coaching job right, and we're really focused from an educational side on their development, then the role of the resident there, if they're early and they can handle it, is to, they might have some training wheels on. This is the first time they're doing it, but the role needs to be that they're doing it. And certainly there's times where you do a quick assessment, and they're not ready. They're just not ready for that, and we can't be um, off to the side. We have to Step in and balance and support more closely, and then try to give them some auto- autonomy as it goes. But I go on wards in two weeks, and I don't know if I have an R2 or an R3, but it's an R3. And my mindset is they're going to be graduating from our program, if we had true competency-based medical education, many of them would have graduated already. Mm -hmm. So my role with that R3 is quite different than what it would be for a new R2, say, in in August or September. So I think some of it is also where the learner is, not only by year, but also their self-assessment on their own developmental trajectory. Mm
0: -hmm. And what did you learn in your study about the primary role of, in general, about interns and students? yeah, on bedside rounds.
1: Yeah, I think these were probably perhaps a little bit more um, set compared to the R2, R3, and attending dynamic. Um, medical students, I think, had more of the role of, okay, they are assigned these patients, and they, their tasks are a little bit more hardwired, and they're going to pre-round, get used to that, present, communicate with patients. Um, and I think they had a little bit more of circumscribed roles. Although I do think that's shifting a little bit in 2020, and interns I think the same way. They they have their their patient list. Um, they their their tasks are maybe a little bit more hardwired in, um, but that is also dependent upon time of year because. Again, as I go on the wards in a couple weeks, one of the check-ins with the interns is, okay, where are they at? Um, they're taking on leadership roles. If they're a preliminary intern, where are they going when they're done? How, how can we have them use this, quote-unquote, arena as the opportunity to practice? Um, and maybe the R2 is, is giving them feedback. Um, maybe the intern is leading rounds. Or if the, it's if the a categorical intern, they're going to be leading a team in three months. How can we help them? Or maybe they're not ready for that. So I think the roles shift through this metamorphosis of their own roles through the through the R1, R2, R3 years. Um, but the student roles, I think, have stayed a little bit more static than the R1, R2, R3 roles. Yeah, it's, it's
0: interesting. I've seen studies from, for example, the 1990s uh, that found that students really did not like bedside presentations but in general, uh, at least with the students that I work with, I find that if they're, you know, if the whole thing comes off in a fairly supportive um, manner and you know, learning environment is, is good, that they actually seem to love presenting at the patient bedside because it's their, their sort of chance where they have everybody's attention focused on them, including the patients and the patients' families if they're around. Um, so, so it is interesting how this this is it seems like it's a shifting thing across the country and it does depend on the work environment learning environment
1: yeah i I totally agree I, i still remember the first time i had a bedside case presentation i was working with a very experienced attending physician i was third year medical student um and i froze um he asked me to present and we were doing bedside case presentations and i i just froze and luckily i had a a really astute resident who said jed just tell everybody what you did yesterday. And luckily, I had spent three hours in the afternoon tracking down outside hospital records, and um, uh, we were we were looking up labs for metinephrines and pheochromocytoma workup. And out came this 11-minute. Whether or not that's too long, probably was. But this 11-minute presentation that just changed and transformed how I do the bedside case presentation. Like I think I was looking at it as a as a rote thing. This big bully in the room. I don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. But once it was framed to me like, look, this is safe. You can do this. It's actually reflecting a lot of the work that, that, that you have already done. And then I did it. Um, it just changed how I viewed it. And that's actually one of the key findings that we found in our early work is that students and trainees who do it more are more likely to want to do it. And I think there's this startup energy, if you will, of getting used to it and, and knowing what the unknown is. And then once you do that, it just breaks down the barriers and the walls. And that gets back to my prior point about culture. If this is happening as a semi-routine for, let's say, most there's a tipping point of attendings who are doing this, I do think it, it, there, there's a tipping point that spirals into them wanting to do it more. But boy, I do think it would be very hard if the majority of people aren't doing it and somebody came in and they were the outlier. I, I do feel for that person because I just think it's more of an uphill battle.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting just to interject with what uh, one of the podcasts that will be going in this series. I interviewed someone who I was fascinated to talk with because she's been at three different institutions and helped to start. Uh, a really active uh, probably one of the most famous uh, and i won't give away which uh, institution it is but you're familiar with them uh, bedside rounds patient-centered bedside rounds and then she went to another medical center where there wasn't a lot of bedside presentations and rounds and it got it going there and now she's uh been in the third place for a couple of years, and there's there's not much um bedside rounds and presentations happening, so she's sort of hanging back and kind of trying to figure out how to reconnoitre that situation so yeah, she's been through really three scenarios where where most people weren't doing it, and then the culture gradually shifted so
1: yeah, I think I, I think that's that's a wonderful example, and I've often felt that if you come from a program where it happens, um, you're more likely to carry that carry that forward. And if you're keeping a lot of your own from medical school or residency, and they're staying on as faculty, and it wasn't happening, you're, I would hypothesize you're more likely to perpetuate that type of routine. Um, and if it is happening, I think you're more likely to perpetuate that. Um, but again, these are hypotheses.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and. Um, So other than what you found in the study that came out in 2012 that we've been talking about a bit here, what are some of the other basic suggestions you have that you have found useful in your own practice as an educator leading attending rounds at the patient bedside?
1: No, i don't i don't have the silver bullet that that if we're framing this as a challenge i I do think it is a challenge um i think there's a lot of good i do think there's a lot of good work going on out there where the the work is happening um I, i think i struggled more when i started because i was an assistant professor i knew i had a destination of Developing as a clinician educator. And I think what most people won't talk about is that the only, one of the only evaluation metrics we've got for our junior faculty is, is student and resident evaluations. And we just talked about the challenges for it. Um, Luckily, eight years later, I'm in a a much different spot. I care a little bit less. Like, do I want the trainees to feel like they're learning? Absolutely. And taking care of good uh, good patient care from our team? Absolutely. But I just care a twinge less about their satisfaction, Um, just knowing that, that we're doing the right thing. And I think that's sometimes a struggle for for academic hospitalist groups. I think um, the data would suggest that they're mostly junior faculty um, and there's variability in how they view their clinician educator pathway developing. Um, so, I, it just needs to be factored in when, when a program and a hospitals group is taking on, if we're talking about internal medicine, um, it, it's, just a, it's just a challenge. But the discussions need to be had about, about how we light our corner and how we value our educators who are doing the right thing or following operating principles that, that may not be the most liked by trainees. You know, my, my closest mentor, he, he, in medicine clinic, every week he carries around a green stool. Dr. Dan Wolpaw, and he'll carry around the stool. And he'll go into every patient's room, sit on that stool, and look patients in the eye. And I'm sure that there's some residents who look at that and might roll their eyes or say, this takes more time, um, this is slowing me down, I've got five patients on the schedule. But Dan does it because it's right. And patients come into our clinic, and they, they like being in our clinic, and they feel like they received really great care. We listen to them. And I, I, I think sometimes that can be at odds with how we have our evaluations or how we set up a system for, for junior faculty, um, if you will. And I, it's complicated. I, I just think it merits really healthy dialogue um, amongst leadership and, and what we incentivize um, and how we try to shift the culture to towards our patients. I mean, that's really what we're after here.
0: Um Jed, any last thoughts for our podcast audience about your interest and in work in this area or or about anything else for that matter?
1: No, I think this is awesome. I think this is uh this idea of team based care and and you know, we are. We often come at it from a, an MD physician-centric lens. Um, my, maybe myself included. Luckily, I married a nurse, so I'm, <laughs> every day I'm seeing the nurse side of things, which is great. But um, having the I, the mistakes I probably made in some of the early research, uh, I was just probably inexperienced. Was it was a very MD-centric, and so a lot of the work I did in, in subsequent years was this interdisciplinary framing, um, and that's what I would put on the table for your listeners, Paul. that that there's an interdisciplinary nature to this. It makes it a little bit more complicated, but the nurse-physician communication, um, the quality of that interaction, the the culture of that, that's what our patients need. Um, So maybe I care a little bit less about the didactics on what checks the box of bedside case presentations in as much as... Being with physicians and nurses who are collaboratively working really well together, authentically for patients, I think that's the the, the more the proximal goal that we're after. So keep keep the um, other staff clinicians in mind in in any designs that are going on, because if you talk to them, they want to be working with us. They want what's best for patients. Um, so th- I think that would be one of my parting thoughts.
0: Hmm. Excellent. Yeah, one of the interviews I did, um, uh, James Nixon at University of Minnesota there was talking about how one of the team members is actually assigned to go find the nurse when they show up on the floor to round on the various patients that they have, so yeah. which which sort of made me realize how deficient I am. We we usually hope that the nurse pops her head in, and usually they do uh, if they're not too busy with other patients. But those are fantastic thoughts, Jed. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining me here today. This has really been fun to talk to you, and um, hopefully our podcast listeners um, picked up. Uh, a lot of useful information as they go forward in their roles as educators and clinicians and administrators in in uh, in this area of patient bedside rounds.
1: Yeah, I, I hope that's true, Paul, and I just want to thank you for taking the time. I think it's an important issue um, for our patients, and I'm just it's a privilege for me to be part of this, so thank you.
0: All right, Judd, have a great day, and hopefully I'll run into you again soon. Okay, thanks, okay. Paul. Bye-bye.